Hi, and welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Artscoping is a podcast featuring innovative leaders from the cultural world, ranging from artists to lawyers to museum directors. It's a pleasure to spend some time today speaking with Dr. Michael Shapiro. Michael received his BA from Hamilton College in Clinton, New York, an MA from Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and an MA and PhD in art history from Harvard University. He was an assistant professor in the Department of Art at Duke University before joining the St. Louis Art Museum, where he was chief curator for six years. After serving as director of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, he began a 20-year tenure at Atlanta's High Museum of Art, during which he was appointed the Nancy and Holcomb T. Green Jr. Director. Among his many achievements as the High's leader, he more than doubled the museum's size in collaboration with architect Renzo Piano and organized a series of innovative partnerships with museums, including unprecedented loans from the Louvre in Paris. A specialist in 19th and 20th century painting and sculpture, he is now senior advisor for museums and private collections at Leslie Heinemann Auctioneers, and is at work on what may be a next book, an account of the origins of the Clark Art Institute's master's program in art history, which is approaching its 50th anniversary. Welcome, Michael, and thanks for joining the conversation on Artscoping. Max, it's great to be with you. I'm so grateful you would make time. I know you must be very busy right now in lockdown. <laughs> uh, we seem to be uh, managing to, to keep busy and have fun, and uh, so I'm happy to speak with you today. Good, thank you. We've established some of your bona fides. Did I miss anything in your extensive resume? No, I think you've provided more than anyone needs to hear. <laughs> Well, we are both veterans of museum directing, and you even wrote a book about the field. Do you think museums are going to return to business as usual once the threat of COVID-19 recedes? Nope. That's the short answer. Uh, I don't see how it's possible. Something approaching what was normal might, might occur in 10 to 20 years. Mm -hmm. But I think this is such a massive reset but on the positive side, although it's going to stretch and stress museum budgets uh, globally for the foreseeable next number of years, I think that it also highlights community and unity and humanity in the most graphic kind of terms. So in a way, I think people are going to embrace their museums uh, and their programs and their collections uh, more fervently than they had in the past. Does that mean that the big push for physical expansion, massive special exhibitions, more crowds is a thing of the past? I think it's going to be reconsidered dramatically because of the massive question of sustainability. And uh, even the wealthiest museums are going to have to uh, take loans or dip into their endowments, thereby weakening their abilities to sustain themselves in the way they had operated before. And then those who are less fortunate are going to have to, I'm not gonna say be more desperate, but certainly more innovative along those similar lines. So I, I don't think the massive monographic 
graphic thematic shows, they're not going to appear as often as they once did. In fact, they'll probably be few and far between. Yeah, I guess we look back to some of the other tremors in our recent history, like the 2008-2009 plunge in the stock market. After that, a very big question mark about how museums would get back on their feet when their endowments were often cut dramatically. What do you think is different this time around? This time, people are currently terrified to be together. And one of the greatest unspoken aspects of museum visitation is being with other people who are like-minded and having a similar experience at the same time. So, Michael, it sounds like time-ticketed shows where the art is hung twice as far apart is I have an image in my head of that type of exhibition. Is that what you're driving at? Well, I think time-ticketed shows are going to be around for sure. It's just that the what we call the put-through, as you know, is going to be dramatically less. So if you say instead of 250 people a half hour that it's going to be 50 or 100, then you're reducing your put-through by over 50%, somewhere between 50 to 70%. And of course, that means your attendance figures are less. That probably means that your membership revenues or sales related to a show will be less and the uh, shop sales. So, that, but that doesn't mean that the experience of those people coming through is going to be any more intense. I meant any less intense. In fact, it's going to be more intense because there will be fewer people and it'll be more of a a retro or old-fashioned experience uh, before the go-go decades. If I could just add, I I think there's a huge opportunity in rejiggering partnerships between arts institutions uh, and not just museums in ways that I can't quite imagine. And people always talk about collaboration and partnership, and of course it's there, but You were kind to mention the Louvre collaboration. I think that was an opportunity between two very different museums to go very deeply with each other. But I felt we could have gone much farther over a longer distance. And maybe the time is right for those kind of deeper collaborations now. And those are appealing intellectually and artistically and experientially. So how do you make a model economically for museums that have come to rely on earned revenue in the face of what you've described as declining opportunity? Well, it might be instead of the 80 to 100 object show, maybe it's five spectacular masterpieces, you know, packaged in a way that can draw people who feel that they can't see it otherwise. And of course, in in an era in which people may be traveling less for the reasons we've been discussing, there may be greater opportunities to say, oh, well, look, you don't have to go to XYZ place. And then there's certain cities like Atlanta and probably Dallas and some other towns that have a very dynamic base of people that maybe 10 or 15 years ago, when let's say we had the Terracotta Warriors here, there's probably a few hundred thousand extra people who hadn't been here and hadn't seen that show. So it could be that a show like that, which was not tremendously expensive, but had a tremendous impact, uh, could be reprised. 
it's coincident with a larger framework around environmental impact of travel for cultural tourism and many voices saying we really have to find a way to reduce air travel as a contributor to global warming. We have to find a way to honor what you were describing at the outset, the local and what it can provide. Uh, it, it may also, Max, be heightening the kind of immersive digital experiences that have been trending positively over the last few years and attracting younger audiences. That probably is going to continue to develop. I think there'll be some very, very interesting responses to the period that we're in, perhaps already being created right now, that could be a fascinating reflection globally. I think this is the first time that I can remember a truly global experience that people are having together yeah. in real time. Yeah, it's shared in a way that only a meteor might, <laughs> might have. But one last question on exhibitions, which intrigues yeah. me in what you've said. What percentage of exhibition goers would buy the phone book museum exhibition catalog that you sold or most museums sell at the high? What percentage of those coming to the show would pony up the 50 bucks or whatever it was for the catalog? Uh, I think if you hit somewhere three to 5%, you'd yes. feel really good. Exactly. So for our listeners, this is the craziest business model in the history of business <laughs> model. Let's find a model where we can miss 95% of our audience and go home happy. But you were a curator for many years. And at the St. Louis Art Museum, you were chief curator. Take us back there for a minute, if you would, and tell us what was your favorite part of that role versus the director as you came to be? I think the favorite part of my role in St. Louis was buying masterpieces. And of course, I didn't think of it that way at the time. And I didn't necessarily hit it every three or four or five times, but I did acquire institution-changing works of art. At, at prices that now, however many years later, seem like a pittance. Right. Uh, so, I, I mean, I've, I, I've always loved the idea, the sort of archaeological view of museum collections, and that, you know, there's, let's say, the Max Anderson period or the Michael Shapiro period, and that, that is a stratum in there and nestled between lots of other sensibilities. That's a bit of inside baseball, but it, is, it was exciting, particularly on the Richter and Kiefer front. So then you flourished in that role and enjoyed it. And at a certain point, you decided to become a museum director. And let's fast forward to the high when you started there. When you got there, Atlanta was hungry for distinction in the arts. And that required you to bring the museum's board along to embrace big ambitions. So can you give us a little flavor of being in the boardroom with your trustees and how you cajoled them into taking some chances? What I remember was that the, the collection was more modest than collections I was used to previously. And uh, let's say in a permanent collection installation, I might say, oh, well, let's, can you bring up a Morris Lewis or something from downstairs? And uh, they'd say, oh, no, we don't have one. I said, well, look, what about this? No, we don't have one. So it, it, it was really motivating to do that. I think that the board members here were so 
as you said, hungry, I would say also appreciative. Yes. And that they said, oh, we can have that. Can we do that? I remember there was a discussion in the late 90s about a multi-exhibition partnership with MoMA, which would have been, which was expensive. And one board member said, can we afford to do this? And another board member said, how can we afford not to? And then they rose and there was a standing ovation. Yeah. That was, I mean, I still get goosebumps, however, 25, 28 years later. Yeah. So that was really good energy. Sure. And it went from there to a variety of other activities, the most notable of which in Carbon was your work with Renzo Piano. You were his biggest client at the time. This was a massive expansion. What was it like to work with him? And did you guys disagree on any aspects of the program? It was a dream working with him. I mean, he's just a (laughs) wonderful human being. He's funny. He's very warm. He's obviously brilliant. He's very sensitive to people in his room, in the room and their perspectives. He thinks of himself as very frugal. (laughs) It's a word he likes. One of the board members who said working on the project was one of the greatest experiences of his life kind of sums it up. Of course, there were ups and downs. No, No question about it. You know, I had imagined that maybe we would have a terracotta facade, glazed terracotta, and, and then suddenly it was off the table and going to be the facade in uh, Potsdamer Platz in Berlin. But he has perfect pitch, spatially and conversationally, too. I remember he spent about 45 minutes compellingly describing why he felt the parking garage needed to be expanded. And he said, this is the least interesting part of a project for me, but I feel passionately for the visitors and their needs for this. Mm -hmm. He was was extraordinary. Part of the achievements that you rang up led headhunters to call you, and headhunters are few and far between in the museum directing space. What is the dance like for our listeners of what it's like to get that first call and consider moving somewhere? Well, I think early on it's, it's um, exciting. And sometimes the uh, call is, is not really to see if you're interested. It's really to quote unquote source a job. But sometimes the idea of sourcing is really uh, an indirect way of asking. But I think the image that I always get in these conversations is once you start down the road, you're climbing up the trunk of a tree and out onto a limb. And the farther you go, the springier that, that, uh, that tree branch is. And it's tough to climb back. One doesn't realize it at the beginning. Let's say you decide against it or, or you, it's decided for you that it's not, not going to work out. Suddenly you're you know, emotionally affected by it. I think it's hard for people to often realize that the headhunter isn't necessarily your friend. They may be a gatekeeper of sorts, but their job is to represent the, their client more than it is to 
help you specifically? We've seen a shift from the St. Louis days when you were championing major acquisitions to chasing crowds and buzz being the preeminent metric. What do you think the background a successful museum director today needs as distinct perhaps from the past? That's a wonderful question, Max. Well, I, <laughs> I'm still dedicated to the idea that a deep relationship to works of art knowledge of certain types of works of art, a specialty of sorts, is much more important than, than a generalist. Because I think that knowledge can be extrapolated into other forms of, let's call it, passion or love of art. And I think the museum director of the present and future needs to be able to convey that sense of excitement and energy Perhaps they always have been, but I, I think back in the olden days, it was a little more staid than that. And I guess I would have to say a higher emotional intelligence than previously is in order to be a successfully inclusive organization. I would personally stay away from the generalist in pursuit of the person who can, uh, yes, keep an eye on the bottom line. But uh, at the end of the day, people come for the art. And you're at the, whatever the right analogy is, the prow of the ship, guiding that, influencing it, encouraging it, advocating for it in so many different uh, arenas. So that level of articulateness and positive energy has to, has to ring true, and that's where the emotional intelligence comes through, and maybe also displaying a greater vulnerability mm -hmm. uh, than prior directors. Michael, you're now a player in the art market. What is the most rewarding feature of your work with Leslie Heinemann Auctioneers? Well, it's also the most surprising thing, uh, which is, I mean, I always love galleries and, and auctions, and as I said, acquiring works of art, but I it never occurred to me that auction houses help people or institutions, that whether it's on the buying end or the selling end, it actually is solving problems that people have. Changing direction of a collection, or I'm, I need to monetize this collection for whatever set of reasons, or I need to raise money to buy something else or do something else. To walk away with a sense of satisfaction that you've enabled that institution or individual to achieve what they hope for. It's wonderful. And yet the other surprising thing in, in this has been, you know, my years in not-for-profit work, I always would hear about, oh, the dark side or the other side, the commercial side. Well, you know, there's a lot more similarities than there are differences. Right. And so you're surrounded by people who love works of art and enjoy their presence and enjoy talking about them and uh, explaining them to people. It's not, that, not as different as one would think. A lot of commercial art galleries are producing scholarly exhibitions with works that are not for sale and publishing lavish catalogs, whereas a lot of museums are doing shows that are increasingly commercially minded. And that's an interesting flip that's happened. <laughs> it's fascinating, actually. Uh, but yes, but I think you're putting your finger on the, the greater porosity between these categories uh, of the art world. Seems to me that that's a healthy direction. But Michael, it's also European. 
That is to say, it's always been conventional in Europe to cross the net from gallerist to academic to museum person. They've never had in France and Switzerland in particular, this frozen concept that you start in one professional life and that's it. That's a, that's a very good point. So perhaps we're learning from them or being motivated by external forces to move in that direction. But it seems like a healthy one to me. Well, you're working on a publication about the origins of the Clark Art Institute master's program in art history, which is approaching its 50th anniversary. Is it fair to say that Clark, Williams, Harvard, some of the more traditional places that turned out art historians who then went on into one of these different pastures codified that channeling, that effort to pigeonhole people in a way to be art historian or curator or dealer? You know, that's a, that's a wonderful thought. I, I don't know the answer. That's, that's the short response. But certainly a program didn't necessarily say you can't do something else. But there was, as I think back in to graduate school days, there was a sensibility that you needed to make a choice. It was an unspoken sensibility. So it's like, okay, are you going to be an academic? Or are you going to be um, a museum person? Or are you going to go commercial? Right. You know, I taught at Duke for a few years after finishing my schooling because that just seemed like the direction I was going in. And then a possibility at St. Louis came about. And I was really grateful for having had the requirement of having to teach 19th century European art, 19th century American art, history of photography and other things, that I, I had a perspective that simply being in one, as you say, pasture might not have developed as fully. And you've done all three. You've been an academic, <laughs> you've been a curator and museum director, and now you're in the market. You I hadn't thought of it that way, Max, but is this, is this the triple crown? <laughs> it is. It's actually the quadruple crown. You were academic, you were curator, you were director, and now you're in the market. You've run the table. Do I get uh, one of those belts like the World Wrestling Federation? <laughs> one is on its way to you, in fact, as we speak. Let me ask you one last question about the Academy. For some reason, you got two master's degrees, one from Williams and one from Harvard. Was the Williams one not good enough and you had to redo it? Or what was the explanation for that? <laughs> That's funny. I think it was that the Harvard one, someone told me that, said, you know, you've already qualified for a master's degree. All you have to do is ask the registrar to print it up and you have it. And it shows up in Latin. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, I think it says the right stuff. I'm not sure. How would you compare the pedagogical outlook of Williams versus Harvard in, in training art historians in those days? Well, the, the Williams program is rural. It's very intimate. It's only two years. And I thought you could truly be focused more than you could in an urban, arguably even more intensive very stimulating environment. I thought I got the perfect grounding for myself at Williams, and then I could rock and roll with my colleagues in Cambridge on the basis of that. The reason for me to go to the Williams program, frankly, was that my training at Hamilton College, I didn't major in art history. I didn't have the kind of solid grounding that I felt that I needed. So it gave me the foundation. If let's say like yourself, Max, being in a better program at Dartmouth, 
going directly to Harvard made perfect sense. I just needed an extra stop with a tune-up. <laughs> well, more than a tune-up. Well, <laughs> fast-forwarding to today, my last question about what a college student or a grad student who's thinking about a career in art would want to know. What type of advice would you give them from your perspective? Uh, I still believe that you have to do what you love to be a fulfilled person. So if, if you're doing studying art history, for example, or modern dance or something else, if you're, if you're doing it because it, you hear bells ringing in your ears, that it's just magical, then, then you're doing exactly the right thing. Perhaps it was a luxury of the times, Max, you, you tell me, but I didn't really think about employment. I just thought, well, gee, I'd like to have a job at the end of this. I didn't feel like I wanted to be a director or a curator or a professor. Uh, I just wanted to take it in. And then I had faith that it could be applied in some fashion. It sounds like a millennial. <laughs> wow, I was ahead of my time. <laughs> Way ahead. Well, Michael, thanks so much for making time for today. I know you don't make TikTok videos, is that right? That is correct. So how can we follow you online or do we just have to wait for your next publication? What's the best way to find you? Uh, maybe I'll come back and speak with you another time. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> Michael, I'm so grateful you made some time today and I appreciate it deeply. We've been speaking today with Dr. Michael Shapiro, art historian and author, emeritus, director of the High Museum and senior advisor for museums and private collections at Leslie Hindman Auctioneers. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.